Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. I am your host, our head of our comms shop, Jennifer Wagner, and I am joined today by Leslie Heiner, the head of our Legal Defense and Education Center, Mike Shaw, our senior research analyst, and Jason Bedrick, our director of policy. And we have a really fun podcast today. This is one of my favorite things that we do every year uh, in conjunction with National School Choice Week and the release of our ABCs of School Choice, which if you don't know, now you know, is the go-to handbook of all of our school choice programs operational in the country. So check it out on our website. But today we get to go through our superlatives. So for those of you who are, you know, want to take a trip down memory lane and remember your time in high school when the yearbook came out and and maybe, you know, you were voted the best or the not so best of something. Well, that's what we do here at EdChoice every year. Uh, we get our heads together in January and we go through all the school choice programs and we decide the best of the best, the best of the rest, where things look good for the coming year. And we recap some of our challenges. So without further ado, I'm going to be quiet and let our amazing team get into our first superlative, which is the most choicey state and new category alert. This is not something that we have scored before, but we wanted to make sure that we were tracking the total share of students that were choosing an educational setting beyond their assigned district school. So we have two categories within the category, two winners within the category. The first is Arizona, which has the largest share of students using a non-public school option, so mostly using private schools. And then we have our second winner in this category, which is Louisiana, for the state that has the highest total percentage of students choosing an educational setting other than their assigned district school. So I will kick that over to Mike and Jason for further discussion. Sure. Thank you, Jen. History has its eyes on Arizona because Arizona was the first to pass a tax credit scholarship program. It was the first to pass an education savings account, and it has the highest ed choice share in the country, which, as Jen defined, is using a private educational choice program. So here we're not talking about charter schools. We're not talking about inter-district choice, but we are talking about things like tax credits, ESAs, vouchers, et cetera. So at 7%, Arizona is the highest. Though Louisiana, especially post-Katrina, they, you know, they converted most of the schools in New Orleans into charter schools. They've got a very high charter percentage. So Louisiana, particularly New Orleans, is doing very, very well. Although I will say, we didn't track this only because there is no good national data source on how many students are using inter-district enrollment. In Arizona, at least in Maricopa County, which is about 60% of the state population, we know that more than 30% of students are using inter-district choice. So at least in Maricopa County, when you combine the students that are attending a traditional public school that is out of their district, or we're using a charter school, Arizona has the highest rate of charter usage in the country at about between 17 and 18%. And that 7% of students that are using a tax credit scholarship or ESA, and then all the other students that are homeschooling or going to private school without using one of those options, more than half of the students in Maricopa County, Arizona, are actually in a learning environment besides their assigned school. So that makes them the choiciest state in the union. Yeah, Jason, that's a really important caveat on the data. Like you said, there, there aren't really great national data on inter-district transfers, open enrollment. There's various terms for them. In fact, not even every state authorizes open enrollment. So that's an important thing to note. But 
you, you do have a significant number of states with significant amount of choosers, Louisiana, Arizona being two of them. And actually, I mean, if you want to get technical, Washington, D.C., if you're talking about purely the U.S. jurisdiction with the smallest percentage of students going to the residential assigned school actually is the smallest number of that with just under 50%. But yeah, important caveats nonetheless. And, you know, just like, I guess, regular superlatives in high school, this, even though a lot of these categories are based off the data, a lot of it ends up being subjective and I guess who the yearbook ender ends up being in the end. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Jason, you do live in Arizona. So, you know, we no, we never tip the scales here. These are data-driven categories, although later on we will get into some that are more more opinion-based. And just a reminder to those of us who are listening, if you want to know how your state stacks up in the EdChoice share rankings, you can uh, check out our website. We have a blog post entirely dedicated to that. And you can also find out more information if you order a copy of the ABCs. And again, I'm going to have to lean into this one because, you know, it's Jason's home state, but our next category is most empowering program. And for the fourth year in a row, Arizona's education savings account program has won this category. So Jason, go on and brag on your home state some more. Yeah, look, I mean, Arizona doesn't miss a shot. This category, we look at purchasing power, funding stream stability, and the ability of parents to use their funds flexibly, right? So in that case, Arizona's ESA Obviously, very empowering when it comes to flexibility. Unlike voucher programs, which you can only use for private school tuition, ESA funds can be used for tuition, tutoring, homeschool curricula, online learning, educational therapy, and you can roll over the funds from year to year to save for future expenses. So it's also a publicly funded program, and it's not by appropriation, so you don't have to go back to the legislature each year asking for more money. It is something that is in-state statute with a formula, 90% of the state portion, which also in terms of the purchasing power, that's about you know as close as, as you can get, right? 90% of the state portion. Arizona also has something, this is a little bit outside of the program itself, but in a lot of states, when you've got students that enter a school that have special needs, the financial burden is put on that individual school or school district to take care of it. In Arizona, the majority of funds for students with special needs comes from the state. That makes it a lot easier, A, for just public schools that have a student that shows up that has you know, very expensive needs to be able to provide the services that child needs without you know, dramatically affecting their budget. But also, you know, when that family says, you know, our students' needs are best met elsewhere, when 90% of those funds are following the child out the door, it really empowers that family to choose. Because in some states, you may have a school choice program, but you know they're only getting $5,000. And you know, this is a student who may have multiple disabilities that cost $20,000. But in Arizona, if that student is getting $20,000 from the state at a public school, then they're going to get 90% of that and, and to go somewhere else. Uh, so it's a, it's a very empowering program, and that's why it wins. But Maybe Mike Shaw can tell us about uh, this year's runner-up. Yeah, Jason. So, you know, EdChoice as an organization obviously is is in favor of education savings accounts like Arizona's. And there are other ESA programs out there, including Florida's, Mississippi's, North Carolina's, Tennessee's. All of those are, are kind of gauged more toward, you know, special needs students exclusively, or at least in large part. And all of them, interestingly, had a decent enrollment bumps in the past year. What might set Arizona's apart, in, at least in terms of the data, in terms of empowerment to the, the most possible families is 
one, it has a broader eligibility base, but two, in the past year especially, as the nature of education has changed significantly, Arizona's ESA grew like wildfire. By most metrics you can gather, there's well over 10,000 students who've used the funding in one way, shape, or form for this school year. Based off trend lines, I would not be surprised if it eclipses 11,000 students for this spring semester. And that's, that's just come a huge way since the time of uh, the program being legislated and litigated, as I'm sure Fuzzly can, can touch on, and with it just having a little over 7,000 students just a couple of years ago. Awesome. Well, I think, you know, we've we've talked a lot about Arizona's ESA. It's worth noting, as you did, Mike, that ESA is our preferred policy design because uh, it has such flexibility, because it has uh, so much potential to empower families to spend the public funds that are set aside for their student in the best way uh, that they deem possible. So worth noting that uh, Arizona's ESA also won our most well-rounded policy category but you both might want to talk about uh, the runners-up there were Indiana's Choice Scholarship Program, which is our voucher program here in, in, in the state where we're located, and also Florida's Family Empowerment Scholarship Program. So those are both uh, runners-up in our most well-rounded policy category. Yeah, well, look, raise a glass to educational freedom in Arizona for you know, winning the trifecta. Other states, I should note, just, you know, we also track legislation at EdChoice, and there are a bunch of bills that would create school choice or educational choice programs around the country this year that will be giving Arizona a run for its money. So next year, tune in because we may have a wider diversity of winners. In this category, we look at eligibility, guaranteed funding, and flexibility. You know, So it's similar to the other category, but this one has a heavy focus on eligibility. And of course, Arizona so far has the ESA with the largest eligibility. But Indiana's Choice Scholarship Program and Florida's Family Empowerment Scholarship Program, both of which are vouchers, also do have a very high eligibility. And maybe Mike can give us some more details on how those work. Yeah, they're both kind of similar programs in that they are uh, primarily means-tested income-based as a, as a primary eligibility driver. The implementation and, and obviously just the duration of the programs are a little bit different. You know, Indiana's Choice Scholarship Program, it's, it's really purely a state-run program. The funding is, is largely based off of what a student would receive in his or her school district. And, you know, it, it's had a, a mainstay in Indiana for a number of years, but the exponential growth hasn't necessarily been there the, the last few. So I know there's discussions about whether the program can be changed for it to grow quicker. Florida's Family Empowerment Scholarship, though, I'm excited about watching this program in particular because it was really just launched a couple of years ago as a legislative fix to the state's tax credit scholarship. It just had an overwhelming waiting list, even though that program was still means tested and, and not a majority of students in Florida couldn't qualify. And that's they've just been able to fill that program to the brim. It has an automatic escalator, which is helpful in growing a program where there's potential oversubscription. And I think, interestingly, to distinguish it a bit from Indiana's voucher, it's primarily administered through the nonprofit scholarship granting organization that also runs the tax credit scholarship there in Florida. So I've just been really impressed. The group is called Step Up for Students. I've been really impressed with how they've administered the new program and, and kind of just incorporated it seamlessly in their portfolio of programs. And again, to reiterate that uh, both Florida and Indiana are among that bevy of states we'll be watching closely this year and working in to expand and potentially pass new programs. So a lot of exciting stuff going on there. Mike, I want to turn to you on this next one, because I know you've been tracking the Puerto Rico free school selection program since it was started. 
And that is our winner this year in the most popular category, which tracks the biggest percentage of growth in participation. Yeah, no, I mean, this is someone who tracks like some of the more anterior jurisdictions uh, of school choice legislation. I mentioned D.C. earlier, been tracking what's been going on in Puerto Rico for a while now. And it it was good to see in its second year of its voucher program that has a lot of uh, drama surrounding it, needless to say, but they, they did have a significant enrollment boost in its second year by some measures growing over 500%, enrolling more than 2,000 students for the 2021 school year. I will note that those figures are, are kind of in flux just with the nature of, of everything that's been going on down there, but it by far had a, a significant boost for its second year. You know, we as an organization, I think it's important to note that the program is capped at a percentage of the overall island's enrollment, which due to economic and uh, environmental disaster reasons is in flux a lot. So that number is in flux. However, the Department of Education there has the authority and has in its first two years kind of cut down that cap to, I guess, manage the growth a little bit more. Even so, though, with just 2,500 students authorized to use the program this past year, just because the demand is strong in Puerto Rico and because the department there, I think, has done a fantastic job of marketing and getting the word out about the program, you did see significant growth there. Mike, that's great. And uh, Puerto Rico deserves a lot of credit for an incredible amount of growth this past year. Of course, we at EdChoice will never be satisfied until we have every single child having access to educational choice. But along the way, we really do need to celebrate those states that are continuing to make that progress. So Florida's Family Empowerment Scholarships basically doubled over the past year. So that's very impressive. Tennessee's Individualized Education Account Program grew by 85% over the last year. And Wisconsin's Special Needs Program grew by 31% over the last year. So congratulations to all those states for growing their programs. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. And and we're going to move on from most popular to most improved. And then we are actually going to let Leslie talk about legal uh, challenges and setbacks because, you know, obviously the first part of this is all data-driven and state-based and and we let her expertise shine momentarily. But uh, the most improved winner this year is uh, Pennsylvania's Educational Improvement Tax Credit Program. And this is the program that has the biggest student eligibility expansion over the past year. So this program grew by 5% in terms of eligibility, and I'll, uh, I'll throw it to you guys to talk about that, and then also our two runners-up. Yeah, so this category, it's certainly data-driven, but there is some subjectivity in it just based off of the way we conduct these calculations and, and kind of just choose factors. Pennsylvania's EITC is an interesting program in that, one, it has a number of different means-testing categories, including depending on like the needs of the child, whether he or she is in a disadvantaged school district or has certain degrees of special needs that make various income thresholds quite large. It additionally has an inflation factor that, due to economic conditions, might have pushed this program to the top in the past year. The same could be said for South Dakota's tax credit scholarship program, which also, in terms of eligibility, grew by three percentage points. And then in Ohio, this was more of a legislative fix or adjustment from what I could tell in that they had just been pushing in incrementally grade levels for their ed choice and income-based voucher programs. But within the past year with Governor DeWine there, they fast-tracked that to to make all students eligible. So a lot of significant growth in, in eligibility and a lot of improved programs in the past year. Fantastic. So, you know, hopefully we'll have a few more uh, bigger percentage points uh, when we get to the 2022 superlatives. 
So we are going to move on to a less positive category, if you will, and uh, these often come to us in the form of the legal challenges that uh, we face because the opponents of school choice, they love to take us to court. Not us as ed choice, but uh, the different programs that uh, get past the state level. So Leslie, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about the unconstitutional ruling down in Tennessee for their education savings account pilot program, which was actually more like a voucher, but they called it an ESA. And then talk to us about South Carolina once you're done with the uh, the other state in the South. Well, Jen, leave it to the lawyer to be Debbie Downer and talk about the, the challenges to school choice programs. Uh, so the biggest setback this year was Tennessee. Tennessee passed this voucher. There's so many families in Memphis and Nashville who for many, many years, I mean, at least now, 10 or more years, they've been clamoring for some choice in education. Um, they go to the state house, they talk to their legislators, and they just haven't gotten much satisfaction at all. But then they did. Then suddenly, here's an opportunity for all those families in Memphis and Nashville. However, leave it to our opponents to say, oh, but there's this obscure part of the Tennessee Constitution that maybe we could use to kill this thing. So first they filed a couple lawsuits, one that had everything in the kitchen sink in it uh, that they could think of to challenge the program. But the legal point that was uh, considered to be the strongest by the lower court, by the trial court judge, was the home rule provision. In Tennessee, it, it simply says in their constitution that the legislature cannot target a particular county. So legislators get mad at some county for some reason, or they have some personal vendetta. They can't pass legislation to override what locals actually want in their own county. But note the wording. The Constitution says a particular county. However, the voucher in Tennessee applies to two counties, not one. I think there's actually some significance to that. But the trial court and the appellate court in Tennessee disagreed and said that, no, this voucher is not constitutional because it violates this home rule provision. So currently, their program that all these parents have been yearning for for all these years is on hold, pending a decision by the Tennessee Supreme Court on whether or not they want to actually hear this case. If they say they don't want to hear the case, then the decision of the lower courts will stand and the voucher will be ruled unconstitutional. If the Tennessee Supreme Court decides that they do want to hear the case, well, then Katie, bar the door, then we're going to have a lot of arguments in front of that court. But they'll all revolve around this home rule provision, much more so on the actual merits of school choice and why this is an important educational initiative that fits very squarely within the four squares of their Tennessee constitution. So that was really a heartbreaking setback. I think most people know that we do a lot of work with parents and we meet a lot of the children who are impacted by these school choice programs. So when something like this happens, you just have to sit down for a minute because it'll take the wind out of your sails. And then we just fight like hell for these kids. And we'll continue to do that in this case. Uh, so besides Tennessee, so there was another one. South Carolina is another one of these states that has 
They have a tax credit scholarship program, but they've been working on it for a lot of years to make it bigger, better, to really make it work for families and to do something else with school choice opportunities in South Carolina. But they didn't. They were close. (laughs) We thought, okay, it was going to be South Carolina's year, but they didn't quite make it. And then just to pour salt in the wound, then when they actually passed what was called a safe grants program, which was designed specifically for parents who maybe they weren't comfortable in sending their kids back to school in private schools, or maybe they didn't like the remote learning options that were being offered during COVID, this would have given those parents an opportunity to find some other educational options that would work for their kids. However, let no good deed go unpunished. And the court in South Carolina ruled that it was a a violation of the South Carolina Constitution because money went directly to parents, then it went directly to schools. I hate to go much further in trying to explain that decision because I really didn't like it and it wasn't the best decision I've ever seen. Let's just say that it was overly broad. And again, for those parents who are so desperate for some kind of options during this COVID mess that parents have been facing, uh, their hopes were dashed. So we felt pretty bad for South Carolina also. Those were two of the biggest setbacks. Yeah, and I mean, it's, uh, it is a bit of a Debbie Downer category. Sorry that you get stuck with it every year. But uh, right. you know, it does put the focus, though on the recipients, the beneficiaries of these programs and the people who lose when they get struck down uh, in the court system are our families and students. So maybe we can use that as a transition from the less great news of biggest setback to the most inspiring winner for 2020. And we debated over this one about whether it should be you know, a program or, you know, a person. And we all pretty much landed that the uh, the most inspiring story of 2020 was the response of parents and teachers to the pandemic. And I, I offer this one up uh, as I sit here at my dining room table, which has periodically been a classroom over the last 10 months with an eight-year-old in the other room, you know, still doing remote learning because he had a COVID case in his class last week. And, you know, I just, if if you are a parent of a school-aged child and you have gotten through this last year, you know, God bless you, because it hasn't been easy. And so I will, uh, I will open it up to everyone. But uh, you know, I know Jason, you you've got kiddos at home, and and the struggle is real. It is real, uh, and it's been a you know, we don't have to tell you it's been a brutal year, especially for families that are trying to raise kids and do work all you know, maybe in cramped living conditions. So there was quite a bit of debate because usually we're talking about a, a program or something or, you know, an advocacy group. But we all agree that if there was one story that just blew us all away this past year, it was the response of parents and teachers to the pandemic. Teachers, often the un- unsung heroes, having to like totally relearn how to manage a class. Like you may have, you know, two decades of experience in classroom management in a physical room. Not a lot of that translates to Zoom. They had to completely relearn how to teach. And as Jen, you put it in, in our blog post, I mean, essentially, parents and teachers were both building the plane as they flew it. One part of the story also is just how, you know, it's, it's the, the role of civil society. It's how families very quickly came together and found solutions. A part of that story is the rise of micro schools, uh, or some call them pandemic pods or learning pods. 
where families were coming together, pooling their resources when their schools were, were shut down and saying, you know, what, we're going to have we'll, we'll, we'll hire a tutor together or, you know, we're going to do online learning and we're going to take turns which parents are watching the kids, finding some way that parents could continue to work, but make sure that their kids still had a social life, still had access to a quality education in incredibly trying circumstances. You know, everybody did something different, but I think most people found something that, that ended up working, even if it had to take several different tries. So that we all agreed was the most inspiring story of 2020. And hopefully it will be over soon because it's 2021 and we're still, we're still uh, many of us are still stuck uh, engaging in those same sort of home learning opportunities without choosing that as our schooling option. So I want to move on to our last few categories here. We only had one new school choice program that came out of 2020. And I mean new, not an expansion, a brand new program. That was uh, Utah's Special Needs Opportunity Scholarship Program. So we can uh, talk briefly about that before we head back to Leslie for the biggest legal challenge. Yeah, Jen, it's, it's interesting you made the distinction that it's a, a new program and not a, an expansion, because in a lot of ways, it, it almost operates like at least a complement, if not an expansion, to Utah's existing Carson Smith Scholarship, a voucher they've had for a number of years. But, but yeah, Utah launched a, a new tax credit scholarship. The eligibility criteria are essentially the same. As those for Carson Smith, special needs students in various categories, their scholarship cap weighting is based in large part with how Carson Smith is funded. At least uh, at the maximum, there is some scholarship grant organization discretion in funding it. And you know, this this is a program. You know, it was a it was a tough year on a number of levels. A lot of legislative plans were totally changed come March with the pandemic. But this was a program that a lot of school choice supporters in Utah have been trying to get off the ground and pass for a number of years. And you know, I think I think it's important that it, it was a tax credit scholarship program in coming years where more direct forms of funding for school choice programs might be a bit of a legislative battle. This being a tax credit scholarship program where it's not the direct funding, which I'm sure, again, Leslie will, will touch on in a moment regarding some legal challenges, but, but that might have made it more palatable for legislators across the aisle. Got it. Well, yeah, again, hopefully 2021 will be a little bit uh, a little bit more of a bright spot when it comes to other new programs. So yeah, but turning it back over to Leslie real quick, our biggest legal challenge of last year was the Espinoza case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which ironically is also our biggest legal challenge, but also victory of 2020. So that's great news. And I'll let you talk about that before we get into uh, some, some honorable mentions that uh, are still ongoing potential challenges for us. So the hardest part about litigation is I, I just spoke to regarding Tennessee is is the families, the families who are stuck just waiting, begging for options for their kids. And oftentimes while litigation's going on, lawyers are duking it out in court and it can take years. The parents are are just waiting and, and hoping and waiting impatiently. But the good news is that we tend to win these cases. So I'm happy to report that this year we not only won an important case, we won a giant case. This is a giant landmark U.S. Supreme Court victory for both school choice and also First Amendment, religious liberty, and free exercise. In the Montana case, it was very simply this. There were, were parents in, in Montana, and they had the opportunity to get a scholarship through a, their tax credit scholarship program. 
But the Department of Revenue, who was administering the program, said, well, they didn't really think that religious schools should be an option for parents. And parents said, no, religious schools should be an option for us. So at the trial court level, Montana won the case. I'm trial court level, lost the case at Montana's Supreme Court, but then petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to take the case because it was pretty clear that the ruling of the Montana Supreme Court violated the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And we were right. (laughs) Happy to report. Now, the upshot from all this is just the biggest news ever. There are over 30 states across the country that have provisions in their state constitutions that limit how state governments can interact with religious entities and that limit how religious entities can participate in private life. And so in many states, states that wanted to have school choice programs felt that they were limited by their state constitution, that they could only provide a school choice opportunity if parents wanted to send their kids to a non-religious secular private school. Now, there are schools like that 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 are good, and that's fine. But the majority of schools, though, are faith-based, actually, across the country that are private schools. And oftentimes, when parents are looking for an option for their kids, it's It's because something's not working for their kids where they are. And we see a lot of cases where kids are bullied and and they need to go to a safe place. Faith-based schools often present that kind of an opportunity for kids and for families that's very welcome. Well, now the U.S. Supreme Court said, you're good to go. (laughs) The court simply said that a state that has a school choice program cannot prohibit parents from choosing a faith-based school for their children. And it comes down to this, that the states in in the state constitution, religious schools were excluded just because they were religious. That is a gross violation of the First Amendment. It is grossly discriminatory. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that in their ruling. So this means that now you'll see many states across the country who will suddenly have new opportunities to provide new school choice options for parents. So it's very exciting. This case is just as big as the Cleveland voucher decision, which was the Zellman decision that was back in 2002 that said the U.S. Supreme Court said vouchers were constitutional. It's just as big as the Wynn case out of Arizona, our favorite state to talk about today is saying that tax credit scholarship programs are constitutional. This was a really big one, and we just couldn't be happier. And the parents in Montana said after the ruling, this means everything, means everything for their families. So we're all celebrating that. Now, so that's a challenge we won. And we have a couple others. So this is where the honorable mentions come in. So Maine... The state of Maine had one of the nation's first voucher programs called a town tuitioning program. And, <laughs> and that program started in 1873. So for 109 years from 1873 to 1982, parents could choose religious schools for their kids. But then there was an overly zealous attorney general who uh, convinced some legislators that, I don't know, 
maybe it's not really constitutional. And they've been fighting over that for many years. Well, now parents brought the case in federal court, lost at the trial court, recently lost at the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And now the big challenge will be for parents who will be asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take their case. We believe that in light of the Espinoza decision by the U.S. Supreme Court this past year, that there's some likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court will take the case out of Maine. That should be a pretty exciting challenge, and uh, let's hope we win for those parents. Now, there are two others. One is Bethel Ministries versus Salmon. That's in Maryland, also in federal court. That's an issue where there were some religious schools that were excluded from their voucher program, which has been very successful in Maryland, much to their credit, and it's growing. But the schools were excluded because of their stated views, their stated religious views on marriage and gender, which do not align with the state's SOGI laws. However, these schools didn't actually violate any laws, but it's going to be an interesting case. You can look for that to go to trial this year, so that'll be an interesting new challenge. And then, of course, there's South Carolina. Once again, that litigation over the Safe Grants program where they attempted to use federal funding to help parents during COVID. The biggest problem with that case now going forward is that it will present some challenges for program design for school choice programs in the future. So we expect some more legal challenges uh, there. But we're up to the challenge and we're going to fight for parents. Yep. Keeps you busy and uh, in our Legal Defense and Education Center. Uh... Keeps everybody uh, on their toes. So as we come down the home stretch here in our uh, annual superlatives podcast, we have two more categories. Both are closely related. The first one is the most likely to expand. Um, the honors for that one go to Indiana this year with some runners up, Arizona, Florida, and Montana. So Jason, I don't know if you want to take that one, but we are feeling pretty bullish here in the Hoosier state. Yeah, and we may as well, while we're at it, uh, look also at the most likely to succeed to pass a bill. So we're looking at Indiana as probably the most likely to expand its existing program. But really, there are there. I mean, Florida is doing huge things. They're actually right now in the process of consolidating their five school choice programs into two school choice programs and expanding those programs. Montana, Leslie was just talking about their tax credit scholarship. They're going to be looking at, uh, really, in a way, it's one of the best designed tax credit scholarships in the country, but for one provision that makes it the worst, which is that each donor only gets $150 of tax credits, which means you need like two dozen donors just to get one scholarship that's you know worthwhile. Uh, so just taking uh, four or five words out of that law will make it go from one of the worst programs to one of the best. This past year, the world's turned up upside down, but uh, educational choice advocates have been working nonstop to improve and uh, expand options for families. And we are, I have never seen, I've been working uh, on educational choice for a decade and a half. I don't think I've ever seen a year where we have had so many bills in so many states that actually have a plausible path to victory. And it's not just the quantity, it's also the quality legislators are going bigger and bolder than they ever have before. They're looking at ESAs with very broad, sometimes universal eligibility. So we think that the number one most likely to succeed this year is New Hampshire. 
which is looking at what they're calling education freedom accounts, named for the uh, beloved, uh, dearly departed Speaker of the House, Dick Hinch, who was, this was going to be this year his uh, signature legislation. He passed away just a week after being sworn in as Speaker, but it has the strong support of the new Speaker, Sherm Packard, uh, as well as the Majority Leader and the Senate President, the Senate Majority Leader, the Governor, and the Education Committee Chairs in both the House and the Senate. So that's why we named New Hampshire the most likely to succeed. But frankly, I mean, it is a very long list of other states where we expect to see significant progress in passing new programs. Uh, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and West Virginia are all states that we are keeping an eye on because they are already in some cases moving this legislation. So we are very excited for what 2021 holds for families. Couldn't have said it better. And uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, I want to give Mike and Leslie one one last chance if there's any closing thoughts on uh, on this year's superlatives. And we kind of are the, the uh, yearbook editors. So, you know, you want to take any ownership or take, uh, take any umbrage at something that didn't get in that you thought uh, should have or just offer some closing thoughts. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. Well, I'd, I'd just say for for all yearbook editors out there, if you guys could heavily Photoshop any pictures where I'm included, that would be much obliged. But in all seriousness, though, to piggyback off what Jason said, and I haven't been doing this nearly as long as he has, but it, it, there does seem to be a wide degree of hope among especially school choice proponents and, and advocates, uh, especially in a lot of states where, you know, we're, we're involved in some states like Arizona, Indiana, Ohio, where there's there's been school choice for a long time. And it's it's just kind of built up a reputation and it's to some extent an established entity. A lot of states, and especially ones where, which I've been tracking for a while and in which I have calls with state partners and, and people trying to do research in, in such states, you know, they haven't had a lot to be excited about until now. And um, it is just kind of encouraging to see the breadth and also, as Jason said, the quality of some of these proposals. Fantastic. Leslie, any closing thoughts from the legal side of things or also, you know, just giving hope to parents who are somewhat downtrodden right now, but maybe have a lot to look forward to this year? Oh, sure. Well, first, I have to give a, a plug for the lawyers. You know, all these states that are active right now, they have an open door, thanks to a lot of heavy litigating done by actually a lot of lawyers across the country, both local and national. It really takes um, everybody being willing to just dig in and do what's right for families. Also, that, that applies to the legal community as well. But it is an exciting time because so many doors are open. But I have to say, if you look at everything that we've just talked about, it seems to me that there is one theme that's real constant. And that's simply this, that when parents have plenty of options for their kids, when they have all kinds of educational opportunities for their kids, and they know that maybe the educational opportunity of today that their child needs, well, maybe in a couple of years, the child will need something else. But that's okay because the parent will be able to choose something else in a couple of years, whatever the child needs. That kind of opportunity for families, it just lifts people up. And consider that for everyone listening who is a parent, you hope, you pray, you want your kids to do their best, to do well, have, have the best shot at life that they could ever possibly imagine. Whatever that is, whatever you can do, but it starts with education. So for parents who have that opportunity to be able to help their kids in this way, 
that makes for a happy home, happy kids, happy families. And then one day these kids will be successful, happy adults. And that kind of joy is what this is really all about. Absolutely. And yeah, I think there's so much left that we have to fight for, especially in the legal side. You, you do all the fighting for us. And and we've got a great advocacy team. We've got Jason and Mike uh, involved in those efforts. And and I think on behalf of all three of you, I just want to say, you know, thanks to everyone for for tuning in today. For I know this is one of our longer podcasts. It usually clocks in around an hour. If you're listening to us on a platform other than edchoice.org, please visit our website, explore our other resources, learn more about our advocacy trainings, legal work, and state work. And, you know, whatever you can do to help, whether it's just writing a letter to the editor or if you're a policymaker, getting in touch with Jason and Leslie to, to make sure you're, you know, policymaking in a, in a legal way. Uh, we are here to be a resource to you as you pursue educational freedom and opportunity for your own family and for all families uh, across our country. So on behalf of EdChoice, thanks again for joining us today and we'll see you next time. 